0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Locker Room Podcast, hosted by the Sports Business Society at the University of Maryland. I'm Marco Majunio, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Steve Shanwald. Steve was the Executive Vice President of Business Operations for the Chicago Bulls from 1987 up until his retirement in 2015. Before that, he worked for the Chicago White Sox, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Air Force Academy, and got his degree from none other than the University of Maryland. So, Steve, how has uh, the retired life treated you?
1: Retired life's awesome. You know, we, we only have one life. We have a finite amount of years um, to live it. And we have a finite amount of those years that we're healthy. And so since I retired, um, I've been traveling the world. I've been to two weeks in Italy, two weeks in Israel and Jordan, two weeks in China, three weeks in Australia, and New Zealand, two weeks in Machu Picchu and the Galapagos, the Greek islands, Egypt. Uh, just uh, when I retired Michael Jordan told me you got to play from the tips you got to see it all and do it all and that's what I've been doing and so now I spend my winters in Florida about seven months a year Uh, I play golf about six days a week when I'm not traveling and my summers five months a year here uh, back here in Chicago so it's a it's a great life Uh, and I think you cheat yourself Uh, there's a lot to see and do in this life and I think you cheat yourself if if all you do your entire life is, is, is work and work and work. There's a lot to see and do and you have a finite amount of time to do it. And I loved my job, loved my career. I, you know, For the first 35 years in sports, I was a Monday guy. I couldn't wait for, for Mondays, couldn't wait to get to the office. The last five years, honestly, I became a Friday guy. I couldn't wait for the weekends. And, uh, and I knew then that uh, it was time to, to get out uh, and, uh, and, and do what I love, wake up every day and do what I wanted, when I wanted, where I wanted, with who I wanted. And, and that's what I've been doing since I retired. It's awesome.
0: So, um, just jumping right in while at Maryland, you were an intern for the athletic department. How did those experiences prepare you for your future in sports business?
1: I was really, really, uh, uh lucky Marco because, um, it, it, when I was in high school, uh, sports marketing did not exist. And that would have been you know, in the early 70s. Sports marketing came into being uh, for two reasons. One, the financial pressures that free agency put on professional sports team owners, which happened in the early 70s, along with Title IX on the collegiate level, which, which basically meant that Uh, universities and colleges had to come up with the same number of scholarships for women as they had for men. Those two things put financial pressures on college athletic administrators and professional sports team owners that hadn't existed prior to that. So now they had to get a lot more aggressive but they went out and marketed their product and generated revenue. So I was kind of there uh, at the almost the beginning when, when sports marketing was in its infancy. Maryland Under athletic director Jim Kehoe had the foresight in 1969 to hire collegiate uh, athletics, first ever sports marketing um, director. Um, Actually he was called director of sports promotions. His name was Russ Potts. And I would highly recommend you do a show with him as well. It'd be a fascinating podcast because he is an icon in the industry. He was the first, he was a trailblazer and as luck would have it, uh, Maryland had the, had the very first sports marketing office in collegiate athletics. I had not planned to go to Maryland. Uh, my plan, we could afford state school. So growing up on Long Island, the state school I would have gone to would have been the S-U-N-Y at Geneseo, or Fredonia, or Cortland, or Albany, or Buffalo, or Stony Brook. My dad lost his job in, uh, in the middle of my senior year of high school, took a new job, Uh, working at hex department store and in Maryland and moved the family down to Maryland. And so the state school I ended up going to was the university of Maryland, which happened to have, as I said, uh, the first sports marketing office in collegiate athletics. So I'm an undergrad there. I'm in my sophomore year. I walk in, I ask for a job in that office. They say they have no money to pay me. And I say, well, that's okay. I'll work for free. And uh, they hired me and I did. I worked there for, for, for free the first year. And I think the second and third year I got minimum wage while I was an undergrad. And I did grunt work, man. I, I delivered mail, I got coffee, I uh, distributed bumper stickers and pocket schedules and assisted in the hosting of bowl officials when they would come to town and uh, just do whatever had to be done as kind of an extra set of arms and legs for Russ Potts. When I graduated, from Maryland and, and you know I had the chance to observe Russ build a radio and TV network from Maryland and sell I had a chance to sell uh, billboards I had a chance in Coalfield House had a chance to sell uh, uh, ads in our program so I got a chance to really see what sports marketing was all about had a chance to uh, be involved in in group sale activities to try to build attendance for football games When I graduated, there was such a lack of a talent pool for uh, college and professional entities that wanted to grow their sports marketing. I was immediately offered a job as the director of sports promotions at the United States Air Force Academy in 1978. Uh, I went to the academy, Uh, Bill Parcells was the head football coach. uh, In his first ever year as a head coach on any level, Greg Popovich was an assistant basketball coach there. And I worked there for a year, and you meet people along the way. And among the people I met was the Associate Athletic Director at Notre Dame, uh, who had a friend who was a the uh, Vice President of Business Operations for the Pittsburgh Pirates. They were looking to hire somebody to come in and generate revenue for them as a director of promotions, sell advertising, uh, oversee game entertainment, uh, promotions, et cetera. And so I was, I interviewed with the Pirates. I was hired by them, went to the Pirates for two years in 79 and 80, got my first World Series ring in 1979. My first championship ring, was there for two years. Then as luck would have it, the guy that I worked for at Maryland, Russ Potts, uh, who by then had become director of athletics at SMU, was hired by the Chicago White Sox to be their vice president of marketing. He knew nothing about professional sports knew nothing about Major League Baseball, but I had been working in Major League Baseball by then for two years. He hires me away from the Pirates at the age of 25 to be his number two guy. Uh, and I end up working for the White Sox for six years, during which time, uh, as the number two guy, assistant vice president of marketing, during which time, Jerry Reinsdorf, our owner, bought the Chicago Bulls and uh, needed somebody to handle marketing for the Bulls and promoted me into the number one marketing job for the Chicago Bulls, where I remained for the next 28 and a half years. So that was kind of my, my progression. and started at the very ground up and uh, i know that when i left the bulls i had a staff of about 80 people working for me and when i started out at the air force academy i was a staff of one i had no interns i had i had a, a secretary if i needed one but basically i was at air force i was the group sales guy the season ticket sales guy the advertising guy the broadcasting guy um Promotions guy did everything and anything as a gang of one. So I got a great start uh, Observing Russ Potts and how he did things at Maryland and then being the only guy at Air Force and having to do everything Really that uh, that I eventually had a staff of 80 people helping me with at the Bulls
0: So when you worked with uh, Bill Parcells and Greg Popovich at Air Force Did you have any idea that those guys would go on to become even close to as successful as they wound up becoming?
1: obviously not um, you know, Parcells became a Hall of Famer. I don't think Popovich is in the Hall of Fame yet. He might be, but I can't remember, but he certainly will be. Um, but, of course, you, you can't predict those things. You know, we were we were at Air Force, and we were uh, struggling. I think the first year I was there, we, we played 11 games. We might have won three games. Uh, I knew he was a great coach. I knew that given time, he would have done great things at Air Force, as some of the people on his staff proved when When he left to go to the Giants, um, Ken Hatfield took over, had great success, uh, followed by Fisher DeBerry, um, and uh, and so he 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 laid the groundwork for a very really successful program there. So I knew he was a great coach. You can't predict that he's going to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame and win all those Super Bowls. Uh, The same thing with Popovich. Popovich was just uh, you know he was at first he was just a cadet at the Air Force Academy, and by the time I got there in 1978. Uh, he was still, I think, in the military and was assistant on Coach Hank Egan's staff. And so you, you just can't predict those things. But, uh, but I know that they were very well schooled in the art of coaching.
0: Right. So now jumping ahead to your Bulls days. Um, you got to the Bulls as Michael was really coming into his own as a player. And as he became more of a superstar and the Bulls started to become America's team, how did your job change, if at all?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that the job of the sports marketer really changes uh, reg, regard, regardless of where the product is in its development. And I will say this, when I got there, we had 4,800 full season tickets being sold. By the end of the first summer, I was there going into the, cause I got there in January of 87, by October of 87, we had grown that number to I think 14,500 full season tickets. So we had a great summer of selling. That would have been the beginning of Michael Jordan's third season in the NBA. Um, So the job one for me when I got there was to grow our season ticket base and get us to the point where we were selling out every game. Once we got to that point and Jordan's greatness became more fully exposed uh, and known, um, then my, my, my challenge was to make sure, knowing that Jordan's career was finite, knowing that great players age, great teams age, that injuries happen, uh, that sports is cyclical because in the, in the NBA draft, it's designed to ensure that the strong will get weak by drafting the worst players in the first round, and the weak will get strong by drafting the best players. That's how competitive balance is maintained. So I knew that eventually... Jordan would retire, our players would age, we wouldn't be uh, the up-and-coming team we were when I got there or the great team that we were in most of the 90s at some point. So my challenge was really after I got to the point where we were selling out every game, and I think we sold out every game, 610 straight games for the first 13 years I was there, my my challenge was to make sure we continued to sell out once our product uh, became not very good, our on-the-court product. And that was really, you know, the maxim in our business was that when you win, you draw, when you lose, you don't, and that will never change. And I was very proud of the fact, uh, certainly it was great that we sold out every game for the first 13 years I was there, but I was proudest of the fact that after Jordan left and Pippen was traded and uh, Rodman left and Phil Jackson retired, that we were able to continue to lead the league in attendance over the next six years in spite of the fact that we compiled during those six years, the worst one loss percentage in the history of the NBA over a six year span, which was 0.262%. We won 26% of our games, lost 74% of our games. And yet we continued to lead the league in attendance over that six year period. And I was really proud of that because that was really my goal during the whole Jordan era, was to make sure that we laid the foundation for success once we stopped winning to buy our basketball department the time they needed to get lucky in the lottery again and to rebuild the team back to hopefully where it was.
0: Cool, so now I'm sure you get this all the time, but what was Michael Jordan like behind cameras? And if you have one, um, what's your favorite personal Michael story?
1: Hmm. Well, he's, he. I always tell people that he's a lot better at being Michael Jordan than I would ever be. And it's hard to get around him because he's always surrounded by an entourage. Even for us, it was hard to be. He was always surrounded by people, a buffer. But I think Michael needed that buffer between him and other people. But when he was in public, he always had a smile. He was always very generous uh, with his time, always very gracious. Um, like I said, he was a lot better at being Michael than I would be, um, or would have been. Um, a favorite Michael story, man. Can you give me a little bit of time to kind of think about that one?
0: Yeah, we'll come back to it at the end. <laughs>
1: so you put me on the spot on that, and I, I gotta really search my memory bank. I, I, I'll say this, that I had the, I've had the opportunity to play a ton of golf with Michael, um, and um, he's got more energy than any man I've ever known. One day we teed off at eight in the morning, we finished at uh, eight at night, we played 54 holes of golf in one day. And, uh, and of course, you play through everybody because everybody wants to kind of get close to him and see him hit the ball. Uh, The first time I ever played with Michael Jordan, he broke my nose. So maybe that'll be my story. He broke my nose because he's playing with extra long clubs, his arms are really long. And we're on the first tee getting loose, getting ready for our round. And He's taken kind of warm-up swings and clips me right in the nose. My nose was gushing blood, and I went in and cleaned myself off and uh, played all 18 holes because we played hurt at the Bulls, and, um, and uh, we ended up winning the tournament. So it was, it was a fun day, and, uh, but he's just, uh, he's, just uh, he's incredible, probably the most successful athlete post-career that there has ever been He's worth a couple of billion dollars now. He still makes at least $150 million a year. And he, the last time I think he played a game, probably for the Wizards, would have been about 2002. So it's been about 18 years since he played his last game. And, you know, Arnold Palmer was also very successful post-career and after he stopped winning tournaments and playing in tournaments. But Michael is right up there with him and maybe has, has even far surpassed him.
0: Cool, so um, now that everyone in America has seen The Last Dance, what do you remember about that 98 season and did you have any role in the filming at all?
1: Had no role in the filming. Um, You can see me in the background in certain shots, Um, but what I do remember about that season is I knew it was gonna be the last season. I remember working really hard, consciously telling myself every game to look around take it all in, smell the roses, remember what I was seeing and witnessing, and uh, and not take it for granted because I knew, and this was the only bad part of the Jordan era, I knew it would never be that good for me again, ever. And so I really tried to appreciate it, live in the moment, take the time to look around, and just cherish each and every moment of that season. In terms of the last dance, Um, I'm very glad that we had the foresight to document that season. Uh, I think they did an excellent job with the production of it. Um, uh, I think it was pretty well factually, a story pretty well factually told. Uh, I think uh, even though Michael was heavily involved in the production of it, I think uh, to his credit, uh, he even showed himself warts and all. When I say warts and all, I mean, For how hard he was on his teammates and how demanding he was on his teammates and how much winning and excellence meant to him and how he drove them and pushed them to be great. Um, And sometimes uh, to a fault, perhaps uh, he would tell you, Uh, but he didn't try to edit that out. uh, And I I, I think that's to his credit. Um, I think that uh, I think that uh, people came away with a greater understanding of Scottie Pippen having grown, out, grown up in a, in a home of, I think it was 12 people in a 900 square foot home living below the poverty line in, in Hamburg, Arkansas. Uh, uh, major breadwinner, his dad was in a wheelchair. One of his brothers was in a wheelchair. He got 12 people under one small roof. He goes to central Arkansas. He's the manager. He's washing uniforms and picking up towel, dirty towels. And he ends up becoming the fifth player picked in the draft. He had a growth spurt in college and uh, had those guard skills to go along with his, I think, what ended up being 6'8 height and ends up being the fifth player draft and now one of the all time, one of the NBA's all time best 50 players and a Hall of Famer. And uh, I think a lot of people didn't understand that while he was the second best player in the league, uh, he was the 122nd highest paid player uh, in the league. And so I think people came away with greater understanding perhaps of. Of why, um, what was going through his mind mentally, uh, especially given that he was having back problems and knowing that he was the major breadwinner in his family and that people in his family were looking for him to help take care of them, you know, or that he needed and felt an obligation or responsibility to help take care of his family. So I think people came away with a greater understanding of that, but it was just, um, it was, uh, it was wonderful to relive.
0: So now taking the focus off of the Jordan years. Um, in 2008, you had the chance to represent the Bulls at the draft lottery, and I think it's safe to say you were good luck. Um, the Bulls came into the lottery with the ninth best odds to get the first pick at a 1.7% chance. And uh, spoiler alert for those who don't already know, but the Bulls got the first pick and wound up taking future MVP Derek Rose. So as Adam Silver is reading off the draft order and the Bulls aren't being called yet, Um, What were your emotions, and how nervous were you starting to get?
1: Uh I I really wasn't nervous. I had done it the year before I represented the Bulls at the lottery, the year we drafted Joe Kim Noah. So I wasn't really nervous, but I was hopeful. Um, I don't think there was a lot to be nervous about because at a 1.7% chance, there's not a lot of hope that you're going to win the lottery. So the one thing I I remember about that whole experience was – they were going down. Uh, it was a live performance on ESPN, and Doris Burke is introducing one by one the representatives from all the teams. And so they introduced Jay-Z representing the Nets, and they introduced Jerry West representing uh, the Memphis Grizzlies, and they introduced uh, Dwayne Wade representing the Miami Heat, Fred Hoiberg representing the Timberwolves. And they get to me, Steve Shanwalt, except that she said, Stan Shanwald. <laughs> and she introduced me as the executive vice president of basketball operations, not business operations. And, uh, and all I could think of after she introduced all those great luminaries leading up to me was TV sets all over America turning off the broadcast. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so I just kind of had a chuckle at that. It was my big moment in the sun and she destroyed it by calling me Stan. Anyway, it gets to the point where my, my name is, the Bull's name is due to be called, and she skips right over us, and it was obvious then that we had jumped up to the top three. And so uh, it's me and Dwayne Wade representing the Heat, and Fred Hoiberg representing the Timberwolves, and they call us down off the podium, and we go there, and it's me, Fred, and Dwayne. I call the stage manager over, and I say, listen, if we win this thing, tell Doris my name is Steve, I don't want her coming over and saying congratulations, Stan. So he gets on the headset. He's calling Doris Burke. I see Doris Burke scratching out Stan, writing Steve, and and she comes over after it's. We're announced that we're the winners, and uh, and uh, and she's very sheepish, and she says she apologizes profusely. uh, Not on air. It's not audible on air, but she apologizes very sheepish and asks me who we're going to pick with the first pick. And of course, as the business ops guy, it's not my place to say that. I knew and hoped it would be Derek. Uh, but what I did say was, this would be of interest to those of you in sports marketing, uh, was after she asked the question, I told her that uh, that would be John Paxson's decision, but that operators, but we're very so whoever we're gonna get, we're gonna get a great player and that operators are standing by now at 312-455-4000 for your season ticket order. We had we had everybody um, just in case we won it, we had our entire season uh, ticket sales force on standby at our office. Uh, we had ordered pizzas for them, and they were on standby to take phone calls if we were able to win it. And and they got a ton of phone calls that night after I threw out that number on national TV. So that was great. And then I'm immediately surrounded by at least a hundred media people. And it was it was really Somebody said, I can't whether whether it was Marshall McLuhan or somebody said everybody's going to have their 15 minutes of fame. And I guess that was mine. And I was surrounded by about uh, 100 media people, microphones in my face, just asking me questions. And and that was great. And then I go back into the green room afterwards, off stage. And the first call I get is from our general manager, John Paxson. And uh, I pick up the phone. I say hello. and, And Paxson says, hello, Stan. So it was a kind of a light moment, and it was, uh, it was just a wonderful day. And then by the time I got back the next morning, I flew back early the next morning, got into the office. It was a very celebratory mood. The phones were ringing off the hook. They had mocked up a uh, – we had a, ma- a magazine called Basketball, and they had mocked up the cover of a basketball magazine with uh, Stan Shanwell comes home with the number one pick in the drafts. So it was a great day.
0: Cool. So um, now we're going to do a segment that we call Maryland Minute, where we ask five rapid fire questions about your time in Maryland, among other things. Um, Are you ready? Yes, sir. Cool. So starting off, is there one memory at UMD that sticks out? So that could be an event, a specific game, anything?
1: Yeah, it was it was working. It was just generally working in the athletic department and uh, that entire Lefty drizzle basketball era. The opportunity to go—you uh, know—the first time I ever flew on a plane, uh, Russ Potts uh, flew me down for the Cotton Bowl. Maryland played Houston in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, and that was the first time in my life I would ever been on a plane. And uh, and so it, it would just be general, just a broad general thing. I wish I could point to one thing, but it was just the the whole general idea of being involved in a big-time athletic program. It was. It was a dream come true. And like I said, it wasn't even a dream I had in high school because the industry didn't even exist. So I, I, it, it, it was, I, I knew that's what I wanted my life's work to be. I didn't have the ability, the athletic ability to do anything more than high school athletics, but this was the next best thing. And it, you know, my dad losing his job turned out to be the best break I ever got because if he doesn't lose his job, Um, I don't get this opportunity at Maryland and it doesn't lead to everything else for me that came afterwards. And I always tell people in speeches I give that sometimes the things that happen to you in life that seem bad, uh, end up being great. And virtually every single time something happened that I thought was bad ended up being good. And, uh, and you know, there's the saying that man plans and God laughs. And it's so true because, um, there are things that are going to come your way and, and, and the way of your listeners that they can't anticipate right now. Certainly you should plan. I, I, I made a, a, a positive action to go in and get this job and, at Maryland and agree to work for free. And had I not been willing to work for free and take some abuse from my friends who thought I was being used, uh, then I wouldn't have had this path, this career path. Uh, but it all happened really because of something bad in my family, and uh, I'm very grateful for it. Cool. So um,
0: who is your favorite all-time UMD athlete to watch?
1: Yeah, um, I wish I was around for the Len Bias era, but I had left by the time Lenny came. Um, so I would say just of the guys that were there when I was there. No, it could be
0: anyone. Anyone that you had the chance to watch, even on TV, could be in person, whatever.
1: Oh, even, even not having been there?
0: Yeah, just even someone of your, past- your, your favorite.
1: Even if they came after me. Sure. Well, um, I, I think that that I have so many all-time favorite athletes, and I know this is rapid fire. Do you mind if I take time with the answers?
0: Yeah, you're all one good. Of
1: best, one of the best people I ever met was Lenny Elmore. I um, <laughs> really liked Lenny. John Lucas, outstanding. Brad Davis, great. Um, enjoyed watching Lenny Bias. Of course, I was privileged to be there when we won the national championship in basketball in the early 2000s in Atlanta. Uh, that was incredible to be there for that. Um, I, I it's, you know, people ask me who's my favorite bull of all time, and I, I can't. It's like asking who's your favorite kid. You know, <laughs> I, I can't give you that. I really, I really always got a kick out of Lefty Drizel. Mm-hmm. He was just so charismatic. Um, and he turned that program around so completely. Um, <coughs> so just a bunch of people that were associated with Maryland athletics, um, who I felt you know privileged to be around and and watch play. I had a roommate. Um, his name was Brian Magid, and um, uh, he was a roommate for a little while while I was there. And greatest shooter I've ever seen, honestly. He ended up transferring to GW, but. Um, but, but I can't leave him out, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. We actually have an episode coming out, uh, Lennell Moore, soon. He's gone on to do tremendous things after his basketball career.
1: Lenny's as good a man as you will ever find. Um, I didn't know him in college because he had left by the time I got there. But he is truly a great man. Um, I have so much respect for that guy, for his on-the-court and off-the-court accomplishments. And a great broadcaster, by the way.
0: Right. So, um, do you have a favorite restaurant in the College Park area? Could, might not even be around anymore. Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Lito's. Lito's. Okay.
0: Lito's is still around. There in
1: we fact, go. They, 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 in fact, um, Kevin, uh, the former athletic director, Kevin, uh, uh, what was his name? The former ID, Kevin. Um,
0: Kevin. Um... I forget right now. I know, I know who you're talking about. I don't remember his last name. I'm
1: throwing a blank. I'm getting old. I'm embarrassed. But great guy invited me to come in and do some consulting work for Maryland a few years ago. And I told him I didn't want to be paid for it. The only thing I want to do is make sure at lunch you bring in some Lito's pizza. It is, it is to this day. Now, I'm from New York, as you are, so you know about good pizza. Right. Um, I'm in Chicago now. They think deep dish pizza is the, the thing. They don't have a clue. But I'm telling you, Lido's Pizza is by far the best pizza that I have ever had. And what is your opinion of that?
0: Um, I like it. I wouldn't say it's the best pizza I've ever had. In Maryland, probably, yes. But I don't know. I've had some good pizza.
1: <laughs> I also liked. I also remember channeling down on Jerry's Subs when I lived in Maryland. Okay. And, of course, Hungry Herman's. Okay. Is Hungry Herman still there?
0: Um, not that I know of. <laughs> okay. By the way, it's Kevin Anderson.
1: <laughs> Kevin Anderson. There you go, buddy. That's it.
0: So, great guy. Um, yeah, you were part of seven championships, <laughs> six with the Bulls and one with the Pirates in 1979. Is there one championship that means the most to you?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I would say the first one with the Pirates because you look at all the great players and great people in the game, in in the, in the major sports that never had a chance to wear a championship ring with their name on it. Getting a championship ring was like a dream come true beyond my wildest dreams. When I think of people like Ernie Banks and Al Kaline and Carl Yastrzemski and um, player after player after player, Hall of Famers that never got a ring. And I got to put one on my finger my very first year in professional sports. So the first one is, is always special. Um, they're all special, but but the first one is beyond your wildest dreams, because you you can't you can't even imagine that you're ever going to win a championship ring and put one on your finger. I never wear that one. They're all on display in my house uh, here in Chicago. But um, the one I wear the most is our fourth one. Uh, the fourth one from the Bulls has four diamonds in the center, representing four trophies. That was our fourth championship. And it's surrounded by 72 diamonds on the outside representing, we were the first NBA team to win 70 or more games in a season. And at that time, it was the most wins any NBA team has ever had. We went 72-0. So I designed that ring. We put four diamonds in the center uh, and, 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 and beneath them four trophies. So it looked like there's four trophies in the center. And then 72 diamonds around the outside, one for each regular season victory. And that's the one I wear the most. By the
0: way, for those listening, if you search up Steve Shanwald on Google Images, you'll find a picture of him posing with all his championship trophies. It's an absolutely legendary picture. Do <laughs> you know
1: what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, so um, last one. I'm kind of throwing you a layup here. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's without any question in my mind, Michael Jordan, um, I always tell people who, who want to tell me it's LeBron, and they don't even mention Colby. And Colby mm-hmm. was probably the closest thing to Michael that I ever saw. But um, I, I think people that never saw Michael play and that have only seen, of your generation, that have never seen Michael play uh, and, and only know about LeBron and how dominant LeBron is, and LeBron is truly great, truly great. Two different players, by the way, Michael and LeBron but Michael could do everything, everything. And I always tell people that Michael Jordan on a scale of one to 10 was a 10 in every area of ways we should measure professional athletes. He was a 10 in terms of athleticism. He was a 10 in terms of his basketball knowledge. He was a 10 in terms of his competitiveness. He was a 10 in terms of the way he marketed himself. Every time he would meet the media after a a game, he wouldn't just, he wouldn't look like a slob. I mean, he'd be dressed like a Fortune 500 CEO. He was a 10 in terms of his defensive skills. Uh, um, uh, On every level, he was a 10. I saw no flaws, no weaknesses, driven. Um, And one thing I'm glad about with the last dance, Marco, is that people were able to see Michael Um, at his best and understand why those of us who lived through that era uh, feel like (coughs) it would be impossible for anybody to surpass or be better than Michael. You can say maybe, arguably, that somebody is as good, although I would dispute that. There's just no way you could say anybody was ever better than Michael Jordan. Um, So for me, he's the man. He always will be. When I hear from, uh, LeBron LeBron fans and Michael haters, I always say, well, talk to me after LeBron wins his seventh championship. Then maybe we'll talk.
0: Yeah, I had a feeling you were going to say MJ, but I just wanted to ask to make sure. Um, So, Steve, that was awesome. Uh, Thanks for taking the time out of your day to talk. I really appreciate it. And um, tell Jerry Reinsdorf that he needs to get you back on the draft lottery stand.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Marco. It was great being with you, and good luck to you and all your listeners.
0: Hey, sounds good. Have a good one. Okay, man, you too.